Hi there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Some Other Sphere. If you enjoy it, please leave a rating on your preferred podcast platform or like and share it on social media, as it all really helps to promote the show. If you'd like to support the upkeep of the podcast as well, you can donate via Ko-fi. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash some other sphere podcast to find out more. Thank you again, and now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is Natalie Doig. Natalie is the creator of Weird in the Wade, a blog and podcast which details her exploration of the spooky happenings forgotten history and curious folklore of the area around her hometown of Biggleswade in Bedfordshire, England. This has seen her investigate a wide range of unusual cases, from a shop plagued by ghostly activity, to UFO sightings in the 1950s, a haunted woodland, and a fire that devastated Biggleswade in 1785. Natalie has a very engaging presenting style, and a real talent for rediscovering local stories that have slipped from recent memory. In the interview, we begin by talking about how her interest in the paranormal started, and then move on to some of the stories covered in Weird in the Wade, and what makes them, and the weirdness they feature, so interesting. It was a great way for some of the sphere to round off 2023. Enjoy! Natalie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. For people who are listening who aren't familiar with the town of Biggleswade, just tell us a little bit about that place. So Biggleswade, um, it's a small market town um, in Bedfordshire. It's not really famous for anything in particular, um, which is always surprises me, I think, that it is such a sort of people, um, when they hear the name, always comment on it. Like, what a brilliant name Biggleswade is. It sounds like something out of, you know, a, a Enid Blyton story or a Harry Potter story. It sounds fairy tale like um, and yet they never know where it is, um, even though it's got such a wonderful name. Um, I first came across Biggleswade growing up because I, for part of growing up, I lived in um, RAF Henlow. My dad was in the Air Force and we were five years at Henlow and Biggleswade was our nearest town. So we used to come to Biggleswade to go to the library um, and I would spend many hours in that library or we'd go and feed the ducks down on the mill pond, um, which is part of the River Ival. So I always loved Biggleswade sort of growing up because it was the place to come to, you know, also go to Woolworths and get pick and mix. Um, so, I remember that. <laughs> but it, yeah, yeah. So it was always, you know, a treat to come to, to Biggleswade and go to Woolies or go to the library and feed the ducks. Um, and I didn't really ever anticipate moving back here, but um, that I did about 13 years ago. So yeah, we're on the sort of, 
edge of Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire border here in in Biggleswade. Um, it's very flat countryside around here, uh, lots of farmers' fields, um, and lots of places to walk and enjoy the countryside. But it's not really a tourist destination. There's nowhere really other than the RSPB have got their headquarters at Sandy, just north of Biggleswade. Um, and other than that, there really isn't, there's not much, unless you're into vintage aeroplanes. If you're into vintage aeroplanes, you'll know where um, Biggleswade is because we've got the Shuttleworth collection just outside Biggleswade where there's lots of old aeroplanes. So yeah, it's a very old town. It's roots go right back to, um, you know, Bronze Age, Iron Age uh, stuff's been found here. The Romans were here. Um, and the, the Biggles Wade name actually is Anglo-Saxon. It was Mr. Bickles's uh, Wade Ford across the river. So, ah, okay. yeah. So, yeah, it is just your typical English market town, um, you know, but it is where I live. And it it does have, like all, I think, typical English towns, quite a few interesting stories sort of tucked away down little alleyways or you know you have to do a little bit of digging but you find some really interesting stories yeah absolutely and yeah there are plenty that you talk about on your podcast um so when you moved back to Biggleswade I'm, I'm guessing you brought with you an interest in the paranormal and all those sorts of subjects that you talk about yes I've do you know, I've always had an interest. I don't think there's been a time when I've not been interested in ghosts and folk tales and folklore and spooky things. Um, it's it's just something that's always interested me. Um, I mentioned the library and I used to, I mean, I still do go and visit the, the library a lot to get books. But as a child, I think there's something really magical about a library that you're allowed to go in there and, and just rummage through all the books and take what you want um, home to read. Um, but they also in the summer used to have like uh, kids activities. And we used to go, I used to go to um, ghost mornings where they would tell ghost stories at both Biggleswade Library and Hitchin Library. So even when I was really little, you know, we're talking about seven or eight, I had this real interest in ghosts and some of those books that I think people remember, like the Osborne Book of Ghosts, that would be a favourite to have a look at in the library. Um, but also fairy tales as well. Anything that was kind of magical and, and fantasy always interested me. Um, and, I, you know, my both my parents read lots and lots. And both of them are also, you know, interested in good stories, I think, more than saying that they would be interested in the paranormal as such but they're interested in stories and good storytelling and if they happen to be ghost stories you know then that's that's great by them um so yeah I've always had that interest um and then it, it ended up being that I would be telling some of those stories to my friends at school um ghost stories and sharing different stories and sometimes it wasn't ghost stories I went through a phase of writing sort of vampire stories, but there would always be some kind of <laughs> horror or um, uh, fantasy element. So, yeah, it's just something that's always interested me. Um, and, um, 
you know, it's it's uh, I think when you do have that interest, it never really leaves you. Um, you know, you don't kind I well, I never grew out of it anyway. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on the um, Osborne books. I, I think we're like a, a similar age. I, I think most uh, people our age who were kids in the '80s and have an interest in this stuff, those mm. books played a, a really big part in, in forming that, that that fascination with the spooky because the, the imagery in them was was so fantastic, <laughs> so and so sort of macabre. <laughs> Yes. And then I also my my um my nana and uncle used to collect it was like um every week you could get uh, a different magazine. You know these ones that you get they always come out in the new year, don't they? And they encourage you to they start off cheap, but then by the time you get to March your weekly magazine's going to cost you a lot more. Um but you then would fill a binder and they had one which was the unexplained and I think I recently looked into it and there's something like 26 binders and I think my nana and uncle did collect all of them. And I just used to spend ages reading through them. And it was like having the sort of one of the Usborne books, but like 26 volumes of it. And they did have that famous picture in it of the um, spontaneous combustion, which you also yes. get in the Usborne book. And once you've seen it, it never leaves you. Um, no, that's the one by the fireplace. Fire, where, yes, um, yeah. Um, for and listeners who are a bit more um, squeamish, there's, there's yeah. just... Um, a lower leg left yes. essentially for some reason and I know I'm not alone in this this terrified me more than anything else um in any of those sort of unexplained books that I read was the sort of spontaneous human combustion and I and I think now they've pretty much scientifically worked out what it is and that it actually isn't spontaneous and usually there is a cause but I think back then in the sort of early 80s reading these things as a as a as a child um they didn't have that scientific knowledge and it absolutely terrified me I think more than anything else <laughs> yeah I, I I seem to remember a feeling like it was a genuine worry that you could have is that you might might, spon- it, that it you might, might spontaneously to combust, combust. Um. <laughs> where I think I was always of the mind that if I saw a ghost I, I quite want, you know, I wanted to. It wasn't something that I was afraid of seeing a ghost. Whilst, yeah, obviously something like suddenly catching fire for no reason, that that absolutely terrified me. <laughs> yeah, oh, I, I completely agree. So you mentioned earlier you, you grew up, you, your dad was in the RAF, and you grew up at an mm. Air Force base. During that time, was there was there any sort of culture of storytelling about weird things they might have seen? I'm I'm thinking sort of UFOs, that sort of thing. Well, funnily enough, not so much UFOs, but there is a culture that I think is very particular to the forces and you know the air force, the army, those bases, people moving around. It becomes quite a you you'd run into the same people occasionally but generally it's different people moving in and out all the time so when you're at school it's different kids coming from different parts of the country who've been to different parts of the world as well and they would bring stories with them so there was there was genuinely that mix that you might not get if you're always in the same place um 
And also it meant that actually sometimes there were different cultures as well that I might not norm would have come across if I'd been just living in, say, you know, a small village in Bedfordshire. But we had people on the Air Force camp who were from all different parts of the Commonwealth because they joined the the Air Force and had got married and had got kids. So we hear all kinds of stories from all over the world, um, which was absolutely brilliant. But then you've also got, which kind of not so much the UFO side of things, but certainly you've got stories that are to do with the war, a lot of them, and war ghosts. And um, I think because it's a world where there's a lot of changing and people coming and going and it feels quite, um, and, you know, we moved around not as much as some people did, but, you know, I moved age seven, age 11, and then again at age 14. But some of my friends were moving every two years. And that, I think, brings a level of uncertainty to your life in general, which means that sometimes these myths and legends become more important because there's not that much that's kind of solid to hold on to. Um, And because where we were based at Henlow in particular had been in the war as a signals base, they used all the old prefabricated huts that they'd built during the war for our brownie hut. Um, And they were terrifying. They were these long, thin, prefabricated corridors, which then had rooms coming off them. And some of them still had the sort of almost original 1940s desks and chairs in them as if as if some people from the war just literally got up and left. And they were just left like that because no one was using them. And then some of the rooms were turned into our brownie hut and some of them were turned into the nursery and some of them were the rugby club. But we used to go running up and down these old corridors looking at these rooms of old dusty furniture and old equipment that had just basically been left there. And there were rats and there were bats (laughs) living in there. And it was absolutely terrifying. And I still have nightmares about these long corridors that we used to have to sort of run down. Um, I mean, they all got demolished probably in the 1990s. But back in the 80s, they were sort of still being, being used. And so I think that just all, the past seemed nearer, if you see what I mean, because we had bits of it just there around us. Um, and there's always the story about the, you know, ghostly airmen who didn't come back from Germany. Every airfield seems to have that kind of story. Um, and I'm going to be looking into a particular ghost story that is linked to Henlow that I didn't know at the time, but I've come across since, who was a, a parachutist. And apparently his ghost um, is a bit of a poltergeist in one of the old sort of um, blocks or barracks um, on the, on the uh, Air Force camp. So I'm going to look into that one. But I never came across that one when I, when I actually lived there. Right. That'd be, that's an interesting point you make there. And when you talk about the, the, the people who lived on the air bases with you and the sort of lives that they led, because mm. almost all quite in, itinerant, I guess, in a way. But it's yes. something I, I, I like about about your podcast is you you immerse yourself in the stories and the human component of of you know ghost stories and weird experiences is something I think is 
is really important and it's not really to do with whether you believe or you don't and it, it feels like people the witnesses whatever they encountered are a vital component of of whatever's happening mm. oh definitely I that's what I think interests me and draws me to the stories it's the thinking about what those people witnessed how did they feel about it how did they react how would I feel if I was in their position and also trying to find some um, quite often historical context for it is there a reason or psychological context and like you say it doesn't really matter whether you are someone who passionately believes or is a passionate skeptic or if you're someone like me where I genuinely don't know and I have an open mind what what I think genuinely the stories that I've covered have all been from people who genuinely believed what was happening to them they they believed that the the place they were working you know was haunted or they believed that the place they went for a walk in there was some activity there they couldn't explain um and so for me then it's about trying to understand why that happened and how it happened and is there a reason for it that you know we can find or is it one where we're just going to have to sort of chalk it up to saying well it, it it's it's a it's a mystery um, and I don't mind that either. I'm I'm not one of these people who always wants all the answers. Sometimes it's nice to actually not know or to to leave stuff open. Um, but yeah, that is it's the human side of things that really interests me with these stories. Yeah, I agree. I I think I'm similar to you, but I, I do have to remind myself about enjoying the mystery. Sometimes <laughs> yes. there is a part of me I think that that would like to know, but but yeah, I, I completely agree. I think I think the mystery is part of why this sort of stuff happens, if anything. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yes, I know what you mean about the. I <laughs> I've seen that meme about somebody watching um, the uh, unsolved mysteries and then being annoyed at the end that it wasn't solved. And and I do <laughs> feel like that sometimes. Sometimes I would like there to be a nice, neat explanation, and sometimes you just can't find it. Uh, yeah, definitely. So when you moved back to Biggleswade, um, mm. was there something that prompted you to want to do the podcast? The first case that you do an episode about is a haunted shop, a pound stretcher. Yes. Yes. When you moved back, was was that something that was sort of uh, in recent folklore in the town? Yeah, so... It's a kind of two-stage thing, actually. So first of all, we moved back here in 2010, or I moved back here in 2010. My husband is actually Scottish. So this was, he'd lived in Scotland and then London. So moving here was very different for him. Um, But obviously for me, it did feel a little bit like coming back to somewhere. And I always like to find out about local ghost stories wherever I go if I go on holiday or I visit a town I try to buy one of the sort of local ghost story books that you can get and so when I moved back to Biggleswade I think I went to the library and I had a look at some of the local history books and I also had a look at some of the sort of ghost story books and 
then I came across on one of the town Facebook groups some people talking about the fact that the local pound stretcher was haunted. And obviously it's just so funny to have that juxtaposition between a place that's so ordinary and mundane, a pound shop, and then, you know, the story that it's haunted. So I I read all about it on the Facebook group and I'd come across it in a ghost book, but it was only a very short chapter about the, the haunted pound stretcher. And I wrote a blog about it because at the time I'd been writing a blog for about five or six years and I just used to collect interesting stories and things that were going on in my life. I'd originally started it when I, I'd gone you know, on holiday to Japan just to keep my family up to date with what I was doing while I was on holiday. And it just kind of, you know, snowballed from there. So I think in about 2015, I wrote a very short blog piece about the haunted pound stretcher, just because it was quite funny. But I really didn't know much. I only knew um, what had been shared on the Facebook group and in the, uh, and the, ghost story book that I'd I'd read that had been written in the sort of I don't know around 2003 um but the idea of finding out more about it and the podcast itself is actually really new it only happened back in March and it was because I went to Uncanny Con so I'm sure a lot of the people listening will be familiar with Uncanny the BBC podcast about ghost stories and and the unexplained they do cover ufos and they had a a sort of uncanny convention in march this year in london and i went along to that and right at the beginning before they kicked off the whole sort of day of activities danny robbins the presenter of the podcast came out and danny's doing his warm-up act getting everybody you know a bit of audience participation and he's asking people where have you come from and people are shouting out you know, I've come from Inverness and Aberdeen and things like this. And um, then he he basically goes, anyone else, anybody else from anywhere? And I was sitting right at the front. So I just shouted out Biggleswade because it usually gets a laugh. And of course it did. And Danny was like, I've never heard of this. Where is it? So, you know, I said, it's only 40 miles up the A1 from here. Oh, and we've got a haunted pound stretcher. So that was it. He went and got a microphone and he asked me to tell the story of Biggleswade's haunted pan stretcher. And I was desperately racking my brains to remember what I'd written on my blog about the haunted pan stretcher. And I could remember that, you know, it was a poltergeist, that there was poltergeist activity, that many people in the shop had reported it. But I couldn't remember the name that they'd given to this sort of poltergeist. And I think I said that it was called Ernie (laughs) 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 because it seemed like a good name. Um, And then after Uncanny, um, I was on social media, on, on Twitter, and a few people were asking about it. You know, they were like, oh, I was at Uncanny Con and, you know, do you know any more about this haunted pound stretcher? And so again, I thought, well, I'll write a blog about it. And, you know, I've already written a short one. Well, why don't I do some digging into the actual story and see if I can contact some of the people who worked there. And then I realised that once I actually did get in touch with some of the women who worked there, that actually this could be a podcast. But I'd never done a podcast before. I'd never thought about it. I had done some very basic sound engineering for my day job. I work in disability rights and I worked at the 
RNIB, the Royal National Institute of Blind People, for um, about five years. And I'm, I'm visually impaired myself. And so there I taught myself how to sound engineer so I could make audio reports, because obviously that's a great accessible way to deliver information to, to um, visually impaired people. But I'd never done anything other than that, really. Um, and although I like writing and um, I used to be, before I did my disability rights work, a drama and English teacher. So, you know, I'm always up for doing a bit of performance, but <laughs> I've <laughs> never done anything like a podcast. But I thought rather foolishly, how hard can it be? I'll give it a go. I'll do this episode. And if, you know, I get a few people listening, then that's great. And you know, I really started getting the research and I most of the women for the Haunted Pan Stretcher, and it was all women that worked in the shop who um, got in touch with me. Um, most of them did not want to be interviewed for a podcast for understandable reasons, particularly when I couldn't give them an episode to listen to. They were taking quite a leap of faith in in just sharing with me their stories. And I was just so grateful that they were happy to send me emails and messenger messages about what had happened. Um, and so I was able to collect together a lot of information from them and, um, and build together a, a story and look into what they experienced, but also look into what was the local folklore about that experience. They didn't call the poltergeist Ernie. I'd got it wrong. <laughs> so they they don't think it's male. They think it's a, a girl and they called her Aggie. Um, and so I was able to sort of look into what some of their theories were about the poltergeist. And so that's how I ended up doing that first episode. And from probably halfway through making that first episode I realized that I was actually really enjoying it and that there were some other stories that I knew I could tell that were almost ready there that I'd also blogged about so the other one was the flying saucer mystery where um a chap made a as a hoax he made a, a flying saucer in 1957 and went out flying it to um, fool his neighbours and there's a monument to him in Biggleswade and lots of people don't know it's there and they don't know why it's there and when they come across it, they don't realise that it's a monument to a guy who did a flying saucer hoax. But when I actually dug into the story, I discovered that the hoax was only discovered because there was an actual UFO sighting that is unexplained. And it became even more fascinating. So I kind of had these two episodes sort of almost you know, writing themselves because they were things I already knew about, but I was just finding and uncovering more and more information. Yeah, I mean, but both of those cases um, are great examples of what people bring to these sorts of phenomena, I guess. So I mean, with the mm. later on in your podcast, you talk about how sometimes phenomena will sort of lead to a story about a place. And then with other mm. times, it's the other way around. A place will a place will have a yes. lot of history, and and something will come from that in terms of the phenomena. And that's definitely mm. seems to be the case with the the pound stretcher, like naming naming whatever it is, thinking that it's a an entity of some sort that's doing this. And I really like that one with the the prankster because there seems to be a real connection between hoaxing and and pranksters, and then real stuff happening. Mm. Like the cosmic trickster or something is 
it's, it's using humans as agents to create all this mischief, but then weird stuff is actually genuinely happening. So, so yeah, I, I, I again going back to my earlier point, I think I, I really like how you highlight the human role in in this sort of stuff. Yeah, because it is so important. I mean. It, one of the things that people quite often say about the podcast is, oh, I really like it because it's not sensational. And and then in a way that also sometimes makes me kind of think, oh, but, you know, should it be sensational? And actually, I think the thing is, is that I don't have to make the podcast sensational because the stories themselves actually are. So you, I don't need to put in lots of, say, you know dramatic music and although I do use music and screams and jump scares and things like that because actually when you really look at what's going on underneath these stories there's actually stuff in there that is actually really sensational but you you know you don't have to make it sensational it's there for you and that's a brilliant link that idea of the sort of cosmic trickster and how, because it happens so often, doesn't it? That you'll come mm. across someone who is, you know, trying to hoax someone or prank someone. And they might be doing it for all the right reasons. As Frank was in, in our case, he wanted to attract more people to come to the carnival and raise more charity funds. And he just thought this would be a great way to get a buzz around the town about UFOs and flying saucers. And they were all the rage in the 1950s. I mean, we think that people are into flying saucers now. When I did the research for it, I was just so shocked at how into flying saucers they were in the 1950s. They loved them. And um, it was a great idea that he had. And he, you know, he, he didn't... F- anticipate that he would get caught up in something that was far more um, bizarre and strange and yet that's exactly what happened he got embroiled in in a much sort of bigger conspiracy that was going on that you know still to this day we don't know what it was and what was happening and it just involved a shopkeeper from Shefford which is like a really tiny little you know, town not far from Bickleswade, who who believed aliens had come into his shop. So it's it is that kind of thing. It's like you you I can't make it any more sensational because the the stories themselves just do that. Um, but it is also interesting what you said about that idea that some some stories are kind of phenomena driven, where you know the pound stretcher as such wasn't a historical building particularly it was about 200 years old maybe maybe a little bit older um it didn't have it's not like the town hall or an old rectory or a castle or anything it's just a shop um and there's phenomena being reported there for the last sort of 50 60 years even before it was the pound stretcher but then you'll have other places where they are historical and they have got historical connections um, and then the phenomena seems to come after those. And I suppose that pot and wood would fall into that one, wouldn't it? Because there wasn't anything ever really reported that was mysterious about pot and wood until that airplane crashed there in the war or just after the war. Yeah. Yeah, I that might be my favourite episode. I loved it I, because there's, there's just something about it I couldn't quite put my finger on is that and I think it goes back to what you were saying about not being sensationalist is that Mm. it's just really interesting it's an interesting story there's all these sort of 
things that are slightly disparate that you go you talk about in that episode. It starts with the plane crash at the end of well, World War Two had just finished, hadn't it? Actually, I think it had. Yeah, it was literally just the September after you know victory in Japan Day, which would have been in August. So, yeah, they were literally just a month after the whole war had ended. Yeah, but still, I mean, this is something that you don't think about. You, for some reason, you might. I mean, and I'm I'm sure I'm guilty of this. Is that you just think that. World War Two ended and everything went back to normal, but there was like mm. months and maybe probably years of things still happening. You know, all sorts of things are still happening, involving thousands, tens of thousands of people, probably. But anyway, sorry, getting back to what I was trying to say is that um, you start that episode with this incident where a, a plane crashed in the wood, um, and the, but then as you as you tell that story and and I, I won't spoil it too much for people who want to go and listen to it. It, it it kind of spreads out into a, another aspect of, of local history. And the great thing about the episode is that there's not too much spookiness in the episode, but there's, there's, it has a real sense of something about it. I, I found that when, like, because you have recordings from your visit to the wood in the episode, through that, you get a real sense of the place. There's there's something about Pottonwood where it has a, a spirit all of its own almost. Yes. And I think it made a big difference actually being able to go there because this isn't an investigation type podcast where I go and sit in places and look for ghosts and things like that. I mean, I'd love to do something like that at some point that just sounds really exciting, but that isn't what I do for the for the podcast. But I had never been to Pottonwood and I'd read about it on Paul's blog um, that he'd written about four or five years ago and I'd never ever looked into getting in touch with Paul but then because of the podcast I did I got in touch with him to say look I've read your blog and I'm going to be doing this podcast episode and he was up for being interviewed which was absolutely brilliant and to talk about his experience there so I thought you know I've really got to go there myself and I was really lucky that I picked a lovely day and it was spring with the bluebells. And when I got there, it kind of all made sense suddenly as to why there were stories associated with pot and wood, you know, because even if that uh, plane crash hadn't have happened, there is something about pot and wood that does, like there is a lot of ancient woodland across you know, the country, um, where it does have its own atmosphere. And yeah, it is so weird. If you if you told people what gets covered in that episode, you know, we've got World War Two history, there's apple growing history, <laughs> there's UFO sightings, there's I didn't even have a chance to get into the stuff about Long John Silver and <laughs> J.M. Barry and the inspiration for Wendy and Peter Pan. I've got to go back to that at a later at a later date. But it's like, how did all these things come from this one tiny spot of woodland that still exists? And since then, I've actually become um, a friends with somebody who regularly goes there and actually does the nature surveys there because it is a, a site of special scientific interest and so they mon monitor the species that are growing there and so they're there every week so they're 
sort of perspective on the wood is very, very different to those of us who maybe only visit every now and again. Um, so I'm definitely going to to revisit it. And there's another wood that I think we might have mentioned in that episode very briefly because Paul and I both also had a strange experience in this other wood that's called Pegnut Wood, which is not too far away from Pottenwood. And I have recorded some audio there and I do need to go back and record some more. But it's one of those really difficult ones where there's some very sporadic local reports of people just finding it very deeply strange and not liking to walk there at night. But there's nothing historical that we can really find that link. You know, there's no, not like Pot and Wood where it was just full of this rich history. This little bit of pegnut wood, we can't really find anything about it. And um, and yet so many locals have got stories about their dogs, their children, or they themselves really being spooked at this one point in the wood. So I do want to cover it, but I want to be able to f- dig into it a bit more before I actually make an episode on, of it. Yeah, no, I know. I look forward to it. Um, mm. But with with pot and wood, I I did find that the, like the history of the orchards that were nearby they weren't they weren't part of the wood. I don't think, but they were they were close no. to it. Um, just to talk about your experience there, they, the the people are reported smelling burning in that wood, and obviously with there being a plane crash, um, that's that's where there's a bit of a connection there. But then what you find out is that. There used to be orchards there, near near there, that were all burnt or destroyed, essentially. And that seems like a equally interesting connection in terms of why people might be smelling burning. It was that since I've been doing the the podcast, I've probably had a few times where I've really felt like I've discovered something that was kind of meaningful, and you know, the hairs on the back of your neck go up. And that was one of them because I'd only read about the airplane crash. And so I went there knowing that some people said they could smell burning when they were in the woods. And I kind of thought, well, maybe if I go for a walk, I might think I smell burning. And, you know, because you have to prepare yourself. And so I was like thinking, you know, I've got to be certain. I don't want to be influenced and to think that, you know, I might experience something and so I was being really um trying to keep my rational and sort of skeptical head on and yet three times while I was in the wood in different places I did smell smoke very very strongly but I was very clear because I took GPS um data wherever I was where I smelt it and wrote down where I was and where the wind was etc it was definitely not coming from inside the wood itself and it wasn't coming from the the actual crash site to me I would say it was coming from the farmer's fields and it probably rational head says maybe somebody up there was burning stuff maybe there was a bonfire I couldn't find any sign of it and I did really go and try and and look and I had my long lens on my camera so I was you know scouring the 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 fields and really trying to to see if I could find out where this smell of burning was coming from And it was only afterwards, after I'd been there and I'd smelt it, that I then discovered the story about the orchards and then discovered that they'd got rid of the orchards. They described it as grubbing up the trees, which to me just sounded awful. And then they burnt them and there was over a million trees. 
And at first I thought they'd done this all at once and there was like some hideous bonfire of a million trees. But it then became clear from reading through newspaper reports and talking to locals, no one had a memory of that. And what they said was it basically happened over about five, six, maybe even 10 years that gradually the trees just got grubbed up and burnt. And to me, it then almost became like an ecological folktale of this, you know, whether whether I really did smell smoke because there was somebody who had a bonfire light. I've had somebody get in touch with me recently to say that there are bees that are kept on the edge of pot and wood. And so sometimes they'll use smoke, obviously, to smoke the bees out. I was actually there at the right time for the bees to be waking up. Um, however, somebody else, the person that I told you about who goes there every week, has never smelt burning while they've been there. And yet they're in that wood every week. And so for him, he it was quite interesting because I thought he was telling me this to say, no, you can't have smelt burning because I didn't. But actually what he was saying is, well, no, I don't think this is something that the farmers do. You know, I I don't, you know, if you smelt burning up there, then I think there was something up there burning, but I don't think it was like necessarily the farm farmer's fields and stuff on fire. So it's, to me, it, it was almost like it doesn't really matter what was burning because because of that and because I was then looking into the history I discovered about what had happened with those trees and it does become a kind of cautionary folktale because the only reason there were so many apple trees and orchards there in the first place was because of the war so it links back to the war and in fact it was the first world war and then the second world war that there was this move for us to grow our own um, fruit and veg and to be more self-sufficient in the United Kingdom and the chap that was growing all the fruit trees there he was running some kind of strange cooperative where individuals owned the trees and the real push was towards British apples and and then after the war suddenly British apples weren't the apples that people wanted they wanted the apples from France and the apples from New Zealand and and then suddenly we they weren't fashionable anymore. And of course, now they're highly sought after because these, you know, these were Cox's orange pippins. And it's just bizarre that we have apples that go in and out of fashion. <laughs> that was the other <laughs> yeah. thing. It's like, how's that even a thing? You know, but it is. It's, you know, when I was growing up, it was all golden delicious. That's what you used to see in the shops. And nobody really was eating a Cox's orange pippin because they were a bit sour. And now because people want nat- native apples they want a cox's orange pippin because you know it's it's more traditional um the trees the cox's orange pippin apple trees are better for nature you know the 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 way that they're they're older trees and so the they're more um ecologically diverse the, the creatures and things that can live on them so it was it was yeah it's just such a it was such an interesting and complex story. And, you know, if I hadn't have gone up there that day and smelt burning, I wouldn't have gone and delved into all of this and wouldn't have uncovered, you know, the the, the sort of rich history of the place and the stories and that idea that maybe, you mm. know, is whatever was causing the burning. In my mind, it was almost like a warning, you know, 
that we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be growing a million trees and then just digging them all up to plant crops that, you know, it's all all seed rape around there now. Um, you know, wouldn't it be lovely if it was still the apple trees? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that that's what's that's so... Uh great about the episode is that it's not overtly spooky but it's no. it's just a, a really interesting slice of, of local history and and mm. and because of one story you, you found out about another and they're both sort of yeah. I guess they're both connected by by loss really like by, yeah. the, by the end of something by a violent end in one case and a you know a, for the trees a an, an equally violent, violent end. end so yeah so so yeah I thought that episode was great. Thank you. Uh, so moving on to something that is a bit more overtly spooky. Um, <laughs> you have a great episode about the most haunted pub in Biggleswade. Um, yes. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, please just um, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it was it was the other time, I think, that I really had that, oh my gosh, kind of spine-tingling moment um, so I heard this original story about the pub, the Golden Pheasant. Um, it's the first pub I ever went into when we moved back to Biggleswade. Um, we just wandered in one day to see if they did food and they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was as simple as that. But um, it's a really lovely real ale pub. So I do like to pop in there and have a, a, a pint of, um, you know, whatever their guest beer is. And I knew that it's the one, if you look up Biggleswade on the sort of paranormal databases and the websites that exist, or there's a, a ghost story leaflet that the local libraries and council produced, um, it's the only story that consistently crops up about Biggleswade is the fact that the golden pheasant has ghostly singing associated with it. But I'd also heard a kind of secondhand account because my friend of mine, who's also my hairdresser, it's one of her relatives had told had told her that she'd heard the singing when she worked there. And I remembered this because it was quite, you know, when somebody tells you a story and it's happened to someone they know, you know, it kind of really struck me um, that actually this is this is really interesting. And when I went back to the pub and was chatting with the locals and the regulars there and saying, look, I'm going to do a, a podcast. What can you tell me about the stories about the pub? They all mentioned that, oh, yeah, from time to time, people say they can hear singing. And they told me a few other stories. And I went away to sort of look into it. And I was really, really shocked when I came across a Victorian newspaper which linked a death associated with the golden pheasant that was connected to singing. It's not what you would expect to find. I, you know, I can't think of another accident because it was an accidental death that I've ever come across or read about or seen even in a book that was related to singing. Um, and it's such a sad story as well. It's another just piece of that kind of social history that I think possibly is being remembered through these stories about the singing in the pub. And 
I think maybe some of the stories and some of the memories about this that people share is perhaps that memory that 123 years ago, a couple of chaps got into a bit of disagreement over who was going to sing what in the pub and one of them ended up dying. And yet I have a friend whose relative has heard singing that they couldn't explain in that pub. So I just loved the fact that I got to uncover this story about, you know, Victorian uh, Biggleswade and also this really intriguing story about the singing. And yet it doesn't really explain everything. But it, you know, it was the last thing I expected to find. Um, particularly as originally the route I'd gone down was one of the other ghost stories associated with the pub is very much not a phenomena story, but a story of this pub is haunted by a prostitute who died. And, you know, they I won't I won't spoil all of the episode, but they describe how this uh, prostitute died in 18 in the sort of 19th century. And I had found a story from 1870 that looked like it might fit. But there's never I've never come across anyone who says they've seen this ghost or witnessed anything relating to this ghost. And so for that one, I think maybe it firmly is one of these memories again, that there's been this story that's been connected with the pub and then it gets it gets passed down. And over the last 150 years, it's ended up becoming a ghost story. But there's other things going on in that pub that people have reported that don't link to either (laughs) of the stories, which is, again, so really intriguing. And I went back, um, went popped back in about three weeks ago after the episode came out. And they then told me that the pub is sinking and (laughs) instructed me to stand in various parts of the pub, which I did. And it is the pub is sinking. And it's one of the pubs that's got a tunnel underneath it. So Biggleswade has a series of tunnels, which we know about, that run underneath the market square down to the church and possibly down to the river. And most of the tunnels have been bricked up. Um, And we know that the Golden Pheasant has one, but it's been bricked up. And um, so the barman, Tom, in, in the Golden Pheasant is sort of, very excited to try and get into these tunnels. He really wants to uh, to find out what's going on in the tunnels. But yeah, the pub is actually sinking. Um, <laughs> and it's almost as if it's like sinking into those tunnels. So um, I will definitely probably be going back to do an update about, um, about the Golden Pheasant and linking it into what I can find out about the tunnels that run underneath Biggleswade. Definitely. I, I look forward to it. With that case, with the people hearing ghostly singing, that really does feel like a case of what would be called a residual haunting, or the mm. you know the stone tape theory isn't a name name yes. for it. And you know, I can appreciate that there's there's not a lot of evidence for how that would work. But to be fair, I don't think it's been that sort of research has ever been encouraged, <laughs> or people who would have yes. a the wherewithal to do it uh, probably have to be quite careful about having an interest in that kind of thing as well. But it does seem like there is some sort of relationship between buildings and people. And maybe it's a, a variation on what we were talking about before about 
when people go anywhere really like a, a woodland or a quiet hillside or or any number of places but there does seem to be a a relationship between a person and a place and I you know I, I can't put my finger on it but it there does seem to be something there oh definitely and I'll I'll I'll, I'll tell you a secret because I don't often tell many people this um <laughs> I because quite often when you talk to people about why they're interested in ghosts and the paranormal um and for example just to mention him again Danny Robbins um from Uncanny he always tells the story about how he you know he was afraid of death and he had this you know real case of panic when he was a student and so for him ghosts very much are about sort of life after death I don't think I've ever really thought that ghosts are spirits Hmm. and you know that's not because I'm I'm a skeptic because I'm not because I actually really if I believe anything it is almost that idea that places can almost have an imprint of things that have happened and I think I'd find it easier to believe in something like a time slip or as being able to sense something that has taken place somewhere before far more than I would be find it easy to believe in spirits um and I you know it's just one of those things I think it's because I've always felt that you know if and I have no idea um what happens to us when we die but if when we die there is an afterlife I don't think I'd want to be coming back here (laughs) (laughs) doing stuff um and I know that a lot of often it's that that idea which is a very Christian idea of you know they're spirits that need to be moved on to the next thing and they've just got stuck but to me that also never really feels right but some of the ghost stories that I've heard and the singing one is a really good example of it almost does feel like where something traumatic has happened it's almost as if an impression remains or a and and one of the reasons that I'm interested in that is there is that kind of idea of within people as well within if you've experienced trauma that trauma kind of stays in your body and you have to work through it and I have experience of that and I, you know, so I can really relate to that idea of maybe traumatic or very dramatic things happening, somehow being held in a space. I find that easier to believe than I do maybe that, you know, it's it's spirits or. But like you say, I, you know, I don't think it's something that's easily provable and certainly currently not with the, you know, the science that we have at the moment and yes you'd be a really brave scientist wouldn't you to say right I'm devoting my career to proving that time slips are real (laughs) (laughs) or that you know something similar to the fictional account of stone tape theory actually is you know real I remember this is I remember being really little and my mum telling a story to someone else about how there was this pub where the bricks had recorded people's voices. And I remember when I found out that it was all 
you know, it was a drama, that it was stone tape theory and that this actually wasn't a real pub and this wasn't a real story. This hadn't actually happened. And I was so disappointed because it just sounded so believable. It is such a great idea, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like you were just saying there, I I, I do think there is something to it, but I just... The idea of a stone tape, it's a, it's a neat, containable way of yes. explaining a residual haunting, isn't it? I, I think it is. I think the truth, if there is a truth, is that it's it's less tangible. It's it's not something you can quantify, which, I, again, I think it goes back to what you were saying about not worrying too much about an explanation, enjoying the mystery. Exactly. And something which your podcast is really good at is is understanding the value of, of a good story. and. And the true stories that that are everywhere in local communities, that's something else I think I've come to appreciate is that that everywhere has a local history and stories. And another thing I think I, I appreciate from my having an interest in the you know in the paranormal is that it gives you a sense of of wonder about the world. All this odd odd stuff going on, it makes you think about the nature of of reality really I mean that's where I find myself and you know I'm not a scientist I I wouldn't be able to try and understand the universe in terms of what makes it up physically or you know it's atoms and molecules and stuff like that but the other stuff (laughs) whether give me a ghost story or a or a cryptid or a UFO or or a time slip like you were saying I'm like I'm all over that I can I can sort of try and understand that and I think maybe that's part of it as well. It's like that's the value of, of these things is that they engage with the world and humans interpret everything through stories. Maybe the paranormal is just reality sort of giving you something good to get a grip on and engage with the world around you. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's about being curious, isn't it? I. I mean, curiosity, I think, is really underrated as a as a trait, um, because if you're curious, it doesn't matter, I don't think, then whether you're exploring science or stories or the paranormal or, you know, whatever it is that you're into. If you're curious about it and you're wanting to learn more and find out more and, you know, then it does. It helps you kind of find a place for yourself in in the world and I think it becomes more important when you are living through difficult times and you know we've just had the pandemic we've got what's going on with you know uh climate change politically it's really scary times I mean the last hundred all the times you know it doesn't matter where you are in time it's been pretty scary but it is really scary at the moment and I think actually trying to understand your place in all of that is really difficult but sometimes a really great way of doing it I think for humans is through storytelling and is through um, sharing those stories about things that we don't quite understand but that we want to and the things that we're curious about I think it gives us a sense of hope and it gives us a sense of kind of belonging of it's really strange to think that something that might make you actually feel unsettled because you might feel a little bit scared by hearing a ghost story at the same time gives you a sense of belonging because it it helps you work out where you are in the world, you know, and it might be just that you think, well, thank God my house isn't haunted. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it might be that it just sparks your imagination into one to knowing more and why does that happen and why do people react like that and why are some people skeptic skeptical you know why are some people believers if it's if it's making you pose more questions then i think it's you know it's doing the right thing mm, yeah definitely we're almost out of time but i just wanted to end uh, our chat by talking about the sort of the time of year we're, we're heading towards the festive season um in, mm. in your research have you uh, encountered any seasonal uh, ghost stories um are you, are you planning <laughs> a, a a festive episode i i am i am i'm but it's not quite what i had planned um i did want to write a ghost story for christmas because i just love that tradition mm. i think I think, again, it ties in really nicely with what I was just saying about sort of belonging. One of the things I really like about um, doing the podcast is so many of the stories actually relate to the seasons. Um, even the ones I do that aren't particularly spooky, the ones that I did one about a Victorian arsenic murderer. She does have a ghost story attached to her, but that was very much about the what happened in a year. And going through that year, it was all tied in with what was happening in the fields and the seasons. And it's the same with um, pot and wood that we were talking about earlier. You know, the the harvesting of the apples. The and so I really love that idea of Christmas being a time where, you know, it's dark and cold outside, and we can sit around the fire and tell ghost stories. And traditionally, we always think of Halloween as being this time where you know, the veil is thin between the worlds. But actually, Yule was the second most sort of scariest time. And, you know, it's only really been in the last hundred years or so that it hasn't had quite as much of that association with it. But I'm really pleased that it seems to be being brought back, thanks to people like Mark Gattis for doing the ghost stories for Christmas on the on the TV every year again. But I just love that because... It makes sense. It's, you know, the shortest day, the longest night. Um, it is very dark and it's a great time for just sitting around and, and telling ghost stories that make you feel curious, make you wonder what's happening in the world and what's going on in this story and helping you to find your kind of place in all of that. So I had hoped to write a ghost story and then I realised I was being a little ambitious with my sort of other work that I do and I wasn't going to have time to do it this year for the podcast so I will do do it but I'll at least give myself you know all of next year to write it um and that was actually going to be based on a letter that had been sent into the local newspaper about Willow the Wisps um right. which I thought were quite nice that whole idea of lights and Christmas lights and these little Willow the Wisp lights but instead it turned out that the episode that's going to come out at the end of November so by the time this comes out it will already have been released is about a church in Bedfordshire that's actually quite infamous um, for being known as the Black Magic Church and the first episode is all about the history of the church and how it got that reputation but the second episode that's going to come out just before Christmas is going to be about the ghost stories associated with the church. And then I realised that there's quite a few church-based ghost stories in Bedfordshire. 
as there are all over the country. And so I'm going to do a collection of ghost stories that are connected with churches because I thought that was quite Christmassy. So it's going to be church ghost stories for everyone to listen to before they go to midnight mass and have to sit in a church at midnight. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, that's what I'm planning to do. Church-based ghost stories. And there's some really good ones. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, Mr. James really sort of yes. um, his his writing style is just perfect for this well this coming time of year and what you describe and definitely that sort of connection between churches and uh, and ghosts. I mean, sometimes they'll be sort of outside of a community, like the, maybe the community that was around them is not there anymore, but the church is still there. And where I am in in Lincolnshire, I imagine is is quite similar to where you are it's quite flat and lots of little villages with lovely churches that you know oh, just you have some lovely dotted. ones in Lincolnshire yeah yeah so so yeah but I, I think as well in Mr. James stories often it's someone who doesn't respect local customs <laughs> gets a gets a bit mm-hmm. of a comeuppance so that's um I guess that's part of it too <laughs> yes yes and actually my parents live in Lincolnshire now they live in not far from Spalding Oh, okay. Yeah, that's just a bit little southeast of me. I mean, I'm in Grantham. Ah, yeah. So they've been between. They're in between Grantham and um, they're in Donington. So it's a tiny, tiny little village. But around there, there are so many spooky stories about people that, yeah, basically have got their comeuppance because they haven't uh, followed the local rules shall we say and actually there was good reason because that would have you know the fens it was it was treacherous land you had to do what people the locals told you or you might find yourself you know at the bottom of a bog basically (laughs) yeah I mean I was reading recently between between Grantham and and Lincoln nearer to Lincoln than Grantham but there was an inland lighthouse um, for, yes. for, for travellers to find their way at night because yeah. it, was, you know, it was so treacherous so yeah that's where my parents are kind of right in the middle of all of that that's that land where they all are is um, yeah they're not far from where that lighthouse was yeah it's a fascinating part of the country really is yeah yeah absolutely well Natalie this has been a uh, really fun conversation thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast well thank you for having me it's been an absolute delight thank you i'm sure everyone listening will want to immediately go and listen to weird in the wade so how best do they do that and find out more about you so weird in the wade is available wherever you get your podcasts just search weird in the wade we're pretty much everywhere um and we're also on social media um so on twitter or x it's weird in the wade we're on instagram threads uh blue sky and um yeah you know we've also got a blog which is easy to find weird in the blog and on that i put photographs and evidence from the um episodes uh transcripts for the episodes and links to more information um and further reading so yeah we're we're you know you search weird in the wade and um, you'll pretty much find us. Wonderful. Well, I'll make sure to put that info in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks, Natalie, and have a, a great Christmas. Yes, happy Christmas. 
Thank you for listening to my conversation with Natalie. Weird in the Wade is a fantastic podcast and well worth checking out, especially at this time of the year. If you can spare some time, please also rate this episode of Some Other Sphere and leave a short review, as it really helps to promote the podcast and grow listenership. Sharing it on social media or even just telling a friend is great too. You can follow Some Other Sphere on X, Blue Sky and Mastodon and subscribe on most of the well-known podcast platforms. You can also support the upkeep of the podcast with a donation via Ko-fi. Details on how to do that are in the show notes. If you'd like to email me here at Sphere HQ, the address is someothersphere at gmail.com. It'd be lovely to hear from you. This was the final Some Other Sphere of 2023, the year it reached 100 episodes, a major milestone for the podcast. It was also named the best paranormal podcast of the year by the Podcast Geek blog, going up against some fabulous shows, such as Uncanny, so I want to say a big thank you to Greg Stockdale for bestowing that accolade. It was a real honour. Some Other Sphere will be back in January with a brand new episode, and there are plenty of guests lined up for 2024. Until next time, take care of yourselves, and have a wonderful Christmas and New Year.